at the end of the day, it's math. So if the math collapses because the buildings are empty and the property taxes go down and the sales revenue go down and the hotel taxes go down, that impact will be hit at city coffers. And also, if you take polling today, the populations are not happy. They don't like what they see. And that's how votes change the, the uh, people in charge. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded before the holidays on December 14th in downtown San Francisco, is with Michael Covarubias, the chairman and co-CEO of TMG Partners, and Saira Sanandaji, the founder and CEO of Presidio Bay Ventures. Today's episode is a discussion among two of the leading Bay Area real estate investors and developers on what the heck is really going on in real estate in downtown San Francisco. We only talk a bit about the broader Bay Area market since, as you all know, downtown San Francisco has become a poster child for the vicious post-COVID downtown doom loop. It's particularly ripe, not only because I live here in the Bay Area, but also because our news loves a fall from the heights. San Francisco had reached an apogee running right up to the pandemic as one of the most attractive and priciest real estate markets in the country, indeed in the world, and with a little bit of holier-than-thou perfection. And then, since COVID has been the poster child for the vicious cycle doom loop, our fall from the heights and the wink-wink of red and blue symbolism has made this a particularly juicy story. As you know, I live in the Bay Area, and I might myself exemplify part of the dynamic at play. I lived in downtown San Francisco. I walked to work and loved and celebrated my urbanism, and then moved to the Sonoma exurbs when COVID hit, and now walk to work from my bedroom to my office at home, and I love and celebrate the community I found in small-town America. I go to downtown San Francisco now only once or twice a month for business, friends, and entertainment, but I'm no longer a city dweller. I am myself one of the statistics. So to unpack this, I wanted to have a conversation with real estate leaders from San Francisco. We were lucky to get Michael Covarubias, who's really one of the deans of the San Francisco real estate community, and one who's been most involved as a leader civically on behalf of the industry. And we have Cyrus Sanandaji, who was one of the first investors back in the market to acquire a downtown office building since we came out of COVID. You might think that the conversation would center around solving the huge overhang of supply and impact on their downtown due to the effects of the work from home on an office market and what has become a town reliant on a single industry, which of course is technology. That was covered in the conversation, but the theme that both Michael and Cyrus kept returning to was politics and how San Francisco screwed the technology pooch with business-unfriendly policies. The effects of work from home amplified by our technology tenant base is a national challenge to downtowns everywhere, and of course the office building specifically. But what might further distinguish San Francisco has been the control of policy by an ultra-progressive board of supervisors exacerbated by a weak mayoral structure. Cyrus and Michael make the case for the need for moderate politics that provides a more business-friendly, we're in this together, to address the real issues in our community. I like the word moderate, which we do not have enough of in our politics these days, here or elsewhere, that requires subtle, thoughtful, shades of gray approaches to problem solving. 
Michael described that process really well in the podcast when he talked about his work leading the CASA project on increasing the supply of housing in the Bay Area. I also like thinking of business leaders also as civic leaders. We talked about this on the podcast with both Scott Reckler last fall and earlier Dan Doktoroff from New York. And now this conversation with Michael and Cyrus, Scott and Dan, and many other prior guests showing their commitment as civic leaders. We need to get back to our community seeing leaders from our industry as constructive collaborators versus the trope of self-interested developers. Anyhow, enough of the sermon. I hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, please share this in your favorite episodes of Leading Voices with your friends and colleagues. To be precise, target friends who you know listen to podcasts, don't listen to but should, or folks you know with long drives, long hikes, or dog walks, or bike rides. Podcasts are best consumed on the move. If you have a few minutes, please rate the podcast on your podcast app. If you're not a subscriber, please do follow the show. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn and comment on the episode via my posts. If you have comments or questions on the show or want to learn more about how ZRG can help your organization in your human capital needs, feel free to email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Michael and Cyrus. Mike and Cyrus, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. We're recording live in person in San Francisco on December 14th for a mid-January release talking about San Francisco. And I'm going to quote, because this is context for it, we are at the one-year anniversary of an article from the New York Times by Connor Doherty that talked about, he didn't use the word there, the urban doom loop in San Francisco. I'm going to make three quotes from it because it's so interesting. It totally sets context for us. There was a time three years ago when a walk through downtown San Francisco was a picture of what it meant for a city to be economically successful. Their virtuous cycle of nearness of new ideas becoming new companies, feeding other ideas that became other companies was the template for urban growth. Today, San Francisco has what is perhaps the most deserted major downtown in America. So this is what we read a year ago, and this was not the only article like this, so we saw a lot of this stuff. And so today's conversation is a WTF is happening in San Francisco particularly for our real estate audience around the country, thinking we're the most impacted marketplace. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to unpack San Francisco. We'll talk a lot about office because that is the driver of our downtown, maybe unfortunately the sole driver of downtown or one of the sole drivers of downtown. And then we're going to talk about broader what works in downtown and politics, what's standing between us and success and rejuvenation of cities. So there's a lot to talk about today. And I will let each of you introduce yourself so we know your voices. And I think we'll start with Michael. Well, good morning. Yeah, Mike Covarubias. I have a company called TMG Partners that's been doing mixed-use development in the Bay Area for some 40 years. Uh, We do every type from office to housing, for sale, for rent, historic rehabs. We do it from the North Bay, Marin County, to the South Bay, Silicon Valley both sides of the Bay Bridge, a lot in San Francisco over our years. And going back to your your question, uh, we'll get to obviously more in detail. Yeah, it has been a, a once in a lifetime shift. You, you can't add a pandemic to a new thing called work from home and then add interest rates going to the moon and not have an impact. So it's had an impact everywhere. 
San Francisco has a lot of reasons why it probably has impacted it more. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll get into that, I'm sure. Cool. Cyrus. Well, good morning. Cyrus Sanandaji with uh, Presidio Bay Ventures. We're headquartered here in San Francisco and similar to Michael and, and TMG, we're predominantly mixed use focused. We have three major buckets. Uh, we do a lot of corporate built to suit work around the country. We do commercial development and then we do high density residential. Uh, and oftentimes we find ourselves mixing uh, each of those uses into uh, larger scale projects. Uh, and we predominantly operate between San Francisco down to the South Bay uh, and are active in, in most cities uh, down the peninsula presently. Okay, so both of you play regionally and broader than, and you play broader than that, Cyrus, but each of you have made recent bets in the downtown and you're located in the downtown market in San Francisco. We may drill into the deals later, but just you were one of the first, Cyrus, and I think you're in the Wall Street Journal about having been one of the first, kind of 30 seconds on what you what you bought and how that was. So we acquired 60 Spear, which was a near vacant office building downtown, a high rise, really well located by the Federal Reserve, by One Market and the Ferry Building with a really simple premise, which is that San Francisco is presently experiencing a tale of two cities. Uh, And so though at a macro level, the doom loop narrative and vacancies at 35%, trending to 40% uh, and a a supposed tech exodus is sort of driving a lot of decision making at at investment committees and and Uh with asset managers. We found that there's there's opportunity uh, today with that dislocation uh, specifically to be able to provide differentiated product. Uh, And when you look at that sort of class A trophy differentiated class, uh, it's, it's significantly outperforming the mm-hmm. average market. Uh, and so that's really what our bet is leaning into. Okay. And we'll come back to that probably and talk more detail about that. And Michael, you're looking at deals and I think you're under contract for something. Not under contract, but we're looking at a couple. Yeah, I think we have been in the same chase that Cyrus kind of referred to as buildings were taken back by their lenders or they were sold by corporate users who said, it's time to get out. The price drop were incredible. Mm-hmm buildings that would have sold easily near $1,000 a foot or 900 are selling for things with a two in them. So you look at that and you say, how could that go wrong? And everything's beauties in the eye of the beholder. I, I was thinking about this uh, matchup between Cyrus and I, and I thought maybe your intent was the old joke about the old bull and the young bull. <laughs> and uh, for those who know the punchline, it has something that's let's walk and meet all the girls. Uh, oh. But... Uh, but uh, <laughs> But also Cyrus and, and I are two companies that are partners in a, in a residential deal in San Francisco. So we share a lot of the same thoughts. There's years and years of people trying to catch the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've all tried to do it. I'm haunted by a project we bought in 2010 called 680 Folsom. It was the uh, headquarters for Pac Bell and the market crashed and we bought it for $60 a foot, a 400,000 foot office building. We got it entitled, expanded it, redid it, and sold it to Boston Properties a couple of years later. So I hear 200 a foot and I go, that's a good number. I don't know if it's the right number. None of us in the room Mm -hmm. claimed to be the great forecasters. Uh, And I've said to Cyrus, I've said to many people, that project will make money. It will have a return of capital and profit. I just don't know what the IRR will be. 
because I don't know how long this recovery is going to take for us to burn through our 30 million feet of something. So it's never an art. It's never a science. It's an art. Yep. As to when to jump in. And a lot of it depends on your capital and and your beliefs in the city, which we'll talk about at large. And I was going to say, and I think today what's unique is that you're not just looking at a macroeconomic issue, right? You're not trying to predict the outcome or the recovery on one variable. You're sort of looking at it today at, at a number of variables and, and namely political, you know, that, that then drives sort of some of the local economic issues. Uh, and then you've got the macro that sort of compounds that. So it's it, it's not a simple bet on interest rates, you know, coming back down and, and we'll, you know, we'll then see these values get back to a thousand bucks a foot. It, it's sort of a lot more complex and, than that. And, and I you think- say that the day after the Fed kind of announced that, okay, we're done, fingers crossed, but still it's not a simple bet on that. Well, it's just it's just not a one-dimensional bet in San yeah. Francisco. But I also I say that insofar as to say that that's also what's created such a drastic or precipitous drop in values is mm-hmm. that people don't understand San Francisco if they're not here. Mm-hmm. And I think you need to be on the ground. You need to be involved in the conversations that are happening leading up to next year's election. And and I think that at least for us is what gave us confidence in this notion. And, and we've sort of been coining the term, you know, from, from doom loop to boom loop. I mean, San Francisco always recovers, but to Michael's point, it's just a matter of how quickly. Uh-huh. And when you say next year's election, you mean local election? The, well, it's the, well, well our local elections have now aligned with the general election. So, so I actually mean both. Okay. National, state, and local are going to have a major okay. impact on sort of the three variables we're talking about here. I think if you look back historically, it's staggering on March 19th of 2020, the day before we got sent home, San Francisco was the pinnacle of the earth. It was the highest apartment rents, the highest office rents, the lowest vacancies of any place, not only in America, but literally on earth, London, Hong Kong. We were the envy of the world. We had technology driving every, every uh, part of our society. We had the new Chase Center, we, the warriors were coming over. I mean, everything was on fire. Mm-hmm. And like you said, two years later, Connor writes a story that says, what happened? Right. And it's a complicated question that we'll get into, but it wasn't that long ago, San Francisco was the envy of the world. And, and some of the envy came from its place geographically on the planet and mm-hmm. the beautiful things that don't go away that are here. Right that make it a city that people love as much as any city on the earth. One, one comment before we now unpack San Francisco, which is what you suggested a moment ago, Cyrus, is just my story just quickly, because I've been in San Francisco for 25 years. I moved here from the East Coast with my wife, Diane, a, a, now a long time ago. I worked for 20 years within three blocks of here in five different places, but it was all in the financial district. And when I started the podcast, I celebrated often my walk to work from Russian Hill to downtown, which I thought was about the coolest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And then right before COVID hit, I did the best, luckiest business thing I ever did, which was I switched from a lease to co-working. And then when COVID hit, that gave me the ability to get rid of the lease. Mm-hmm. And we moved out of co-working and then we relocated to Sonoma. So I don't sit downtown anymore. So now it's a place I visit once a month, almost as a tourist. You guys are both downtown all the time. So you feel it, you see it, you know what's going on. 
But this is a city I love as well. I think about all the time. This is home base, as well as D.C., where I came from, which also has its own challenges. <laughs> so this is not just here in terms of the themes that we're talking about. You're the common denominator in both of those, apparently. That may be the case. <laughs> okay, so let's think about San Francisco and let's understand the market. And Cyrus, maybe you can walk us through kind of the amount of office space, what absorption used to be, what rents were on the sugar high versus normalized rents, and kind of what the actual story on the ground is today. So just at a high level, I think to set the context as well, we have uh, something called Prop M that was enacted many decades ago that has artificially limited our office growth and just the size of the office market since it was passed. And, and so today where we sit, the office market's at about, eight, or the inventory's at about 89 million square feet. Of that, 30 million is currently vacant. So that's roughly 35%. And we're trending to about 40% because we know that there's still of leases that are going to be maturing here soon in the next year or 18 months. Uh, and it's unlikely that those users, those occupiers are going to be renewing and certainly not in their existing footprints. So when you look at that vacancy level, that 30 million feet, you then talk about absorption. Our tenure trailing demand is about five and a half million feet. And again, we're talking pure office here. Uh, so five and a half million feet annually. In terms of green shoots and where we are today, we, up until about 30 days ago, actually got to about 5.4 million feet of tenants in the market. And we've since had a number of large transactions, sort of OpenAI, Anthropic, a few others uh, that are notable that have transacted. But but it's to think that in 2023, we've actually hit our 10-year trailing average from a tenant demand perspective mm -hmm. is a huge sign of, of what we're talking about in terms of the recovery of the market. But it's going to take us a lot longer to actually absorb from a net absorption standpoint to get through the 30 million feet of vacancy, which you know could be five plus years uh, before, before we actually see that sort of happen. And, and it takes that five years to have pricing power because until you get to some place of there's not just a ton of vacant space, then tenants get to rule the world. So let's go back to March 19th of 2020 that Michael right. touched on, right? We were sub 5% vacancy. I think it was closer to 3%. You had deals that were getting signed in the triple digits for sites that hadn't even pulled permits yet. Right. Um, that's how desperate a lot of companies were for for expansion. Um, Pinterest, you know, at 88 Bluxem was a was a high, you know, $120, you know, a foot lease. They mm -hmm. hadn't even pulled permits yet. So uh, point being that Prop M, that artificial limiter on, on sort of our office inventory uh, has been a huge driver in, in the swing of, of sort of value or at least rent growth in the city. And to your point, until we see you know, significant absorption and that 30 million square feet of vacancy start to, to dwindle down, you know, on an average basis, we're going to see rents continue to, to soften. Now, the city has held off or a lot of owners have held off with this dream that, you know, survive to 25 and, and keep kicking the can down the road and not right. try to adjust rents. But as you see the reset happening, as you see 201 Spear and 60 Spear and, you know, uh, all these other deals get done at the new basis, these owners, 350 Cal, 550 Cal and so on, these owners don't have the same incentives uh, and don't have the same high basis. So we're going to start to see more 
of a rent correction, mm-hmm. certainly in that commoditized you know, category. I think it's important to go back a step in how we got where we are. You have to remember San Francisco in its pre-glory glory days was filled with companies like Clorox and PG&E and uh, Chevron and Bank of America headquarters and Wells Fargo headquarters, real corporate balance to an mm-hmm. economy like New York has with Wall Street. We as as a city and the politicians started saying, well, we can just tax everybody to death. So we added on this tax, we added on that tax, and pretty soon it was cheaper to be in Pleasanton or it was cheaper to be in North Carolina. It was cheaper to be anywhere but in San Francisco. So we lost all of those headquarters. Every single one of them has moved. So that created large chunks of vacant space and technology, which had been here a little bit, but mostly in the South Bay, said, wow, look, we can get a half a million feet here and it can be way cheaper than Silicon Valley was because the rents in San Francisco had come down. So we filled up all that vacuum of space with tech. Salesforce, Microsoft, Autodesk, Facebook, you name it. Uh, They all came, they all took over gobs of space and vacancy went to zero, rents went to the sky. And what we had essentially from a political standpoint was a whole new target audience. Mm -hmm. We can now raise taxes again because you know, in a sense, re- real estate costs weren't the driver for tech companies for many years. Right. It was getting the right people. So they, they got the, the smart, young folks who wanted to be in the city, and they could expand. We said as politicians, like I said, new target audience. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's not be nice to them in a sense. They, let's, let's give them a hard story when they want to have buses going up and down. We, we fought that. We added this tax, we added that tax, then the homelessness added a new cost. So let's tax them for that. It's their fault. We blame tech for all the things that were going wrong at that time. And then tech finally said, and we know they said it, that's enough. And we don't need to be in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when the, when the crunch hit and people started saying, where do you want to be? It was easy to abandon the space in San Francisco because they were tired of the tax and attacks that came from the political base. So the unintended consequences of continuing to just say we can t- charge them to the moon, we now have what we have. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, I just, to, to put a finer point to that is that we, we have vilified business mm-hmm. for, for decades in San Francisco and uh, a consequence of sort of the failure of leadership and the failure of government here uh, is, is scapegoating, right? And so what we found as we've talked to tenants who are considering either downsizing or moving, is that their people really want to be here. And that's sort of the tension that they're trying to balance. Uh-huh. But fundamentally, when revenues are down and when you know capital is not as cheap as it used to be and so on, it's a decision they have to make forcibly. Stripe doesn't want to be outside of San Francisco. They cannot operate in San Francisco as a result of Prop C. I mean, fundamentally, their business model doesn't work. Prop C is? It is the homeless tax. That, yep. So it's the gross receipts tax. Okay. Uh, and it is extremely punitive to financial services firms like Stripe that take a very small percentage of processing fees, right, and have a small margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way that the gross receipts tax works, it, it's sort of in lieu of a payroll tax concept, right. was a way for, for the local, more progressive politicians to essentially claw at what was left 
of these companies. Right. Um, and that's been the nail in the coffin from my perspective of San Francisco. And, and the doom loop started in 2018 when this proposition passed. The doom loop was not COVID-induced. Mm. And I think that's something that we keep overlooking in this conversation. The seeds were planted by all of and, and the other component is housing. Uh, you don't need to get a whole lot of newspapers to tell you the stories of every project that has gone through the meat grinder, yep. if at all, making it to the other end to get approval for any sort of increase in our housing stock. And when I was chairing the Bay Area Council, I quoted back in 2016 or 17, I said, housing is going to be the, the, the thing that kills the golden goose. Mm -hmm. Because we were living off of being the golden goose. Everybody wanted to be here. Pricing didn't matter. Housing, rent, business, until it did. And so we are woefully behind in our housing stock. Folks in Sacramento have started to try to chip away at that, Scott Weiner and others. Right to put punishment on cities for not getting their housing done. And today it's still in the middle of being done. But we made a chip at it with CASA. We started the process of, of getting housing as a requirement, not a luxury for cities. Mm -hmm. And But you know, it takes forever to build a house and an apartment. And today the math doesn't work because construction costs have gone to the moon. Rents have come down. So it's a catch-22. We now are getting the politics ready to build more but we can't make the math work. So we've, we've, we've gone into a, a vicious circle of, you gotta combine when you can get it built with what the math is gonna be and that the city will be in favor of approving these things. So those two things, I think, when they combine are, are we're That's powerful right. forces. Well, yeah. and, and similar concept of vilifying tech or business, uh, the progressives have vilified anyone that's tried to build housing here uh, as a greedy capitalist and so on. But the, right. the big irony, the paradox today is that there's no housing demand if there's no employment. And so right. even though we have a significant, to the state's count, an 82,000 you know, uh, dwelling unit deficit uh, over the next eight years at minimum relative to- 82,000 in San Francisco. In San Francisco alone, 42,000 of which the arena uh, is targeting as affordable. Uh -huh. uh, to give you context, right? So over eight years, you need to be building 10,000 units a year. Yep. I think in our best years, maybe we built 3,000 to 4,000 units at best at, at the best. peak yeah. in the last cycle. So it, the point being that that was when employment was through the roof and demand was insatiable. Today, you know, yes, vacancies have recovered in multifamily in uh -huh. San Francisco, but rents haven't fully recovered. And then you compound that with the macro issues that Michael touched on with interest rates and then stupid decisions, pardon my French, by the politicians as it relates to things like transfer tax and taking 6% of your gross sales proceeds right. from an apartment. It just, the math doesn't work. So. I want to come back to politics and politicians. We're just getting warmed up. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. good. Well, let's put a pin in the warm up, and we're going to go back to where we were for a few minutes ago, because we talked about the economy here from an office standpoint becoming over reliant on tech, and you talked about the amount of supply. I wonder how much of this. I'm going to ask four or five questions, three or four questions at once. How much of the supply is A, B, and C? How much is commodity? How much is ultra luxury stuff, which people say is holding up and I don't know here versus other places. And then also the downtown in San Francisco is very largely office, not nightlife. 
So I want to think through what the dynamics mean when people don't come to the office in an off in a canyon of office buildings, what that doom loop means too. Cyrus, maybe you should try to unpack that a little bit. So when you look at the sort of trophy class, and I'll just give you some some rent statistics. So the, the vacancy rate in that differentiated trophy class, which is predominantly new construction and view space, uh-huh. is in that sort of 10 to 12% range when the market is at 35, trending to 40. Mm-hmm. The rents in that trophy class are still triple digits. We're still seeing 100 to $130 rents posting. And this is not for small space. I mean, we're talk- this isn't for a couple thousand feet. This, we're talking about 20, 30, 40, 50,000 foot spaces. Um, to re- take new space, or, or, or even renewals, yes, okay. both. Yep. Um, again, in the trophy class. Mm-hmm. There are buildings that are completely commoditized that are in that sort of class B or C category and then compounded when you add it in locations like mid-market that you could not give away for free at this point. Um, and the city is recognizing that and facilitating either acquisitions or leases for nonprofits and other uh, service-based sort of you know organizations and, and providers um, to try to address it, but it's too little, candidly, to, to move the needle at uh-huh. this point. So I think understanding that it's this tale of two cities yep. is really important. As it relates to the question of downtown and the mm-hmm. mix of uses, mm-hmm. again, this is a chicken and the egg issue. I don't think that you can focus on office conversions and trying to drive a residential process and you know emphasis and investment when you haven't addressed clean and safe streets. So you sort of need to start at step one, but everything needs to happen concurrently, right? That mm-hmm. We can't build housing anywhere in the city, let alone in downtown. I think that a lot of what we've done as it relates to vacant to vibrant and, you know, paddle being put up at the Embarcadero Plaza and, you know, a number of those types of activations, like the lasers that were shot down Market Street during APEC, those types of interesting placemaking ideas need to be, you know, heavily supported and, 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 and encouraged by the city. Um, and I think the city is getting the message. Certainly, our current mayor understands that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of members of the Board of Supervisors are, are coming around to that idea, but not enough. Certainly not a majority that we would need. But, you know, they move the Ferris wheel to the, you know, to Fisherman's Wharf, right? That may seem silly, but that creates a point of interest and drives mm-hmm. people down there. We need to do a lot more of that type of thing to then want to make downtown a place that people want to actually live or work. Mm-hmm. Mike, any comments to that? Yeah, I think that people choose to be in a business environment, clearly got to be clean and safe. Got to have transportation that's accessible and perceived to be safe. BART went through a horrendous couple of years being perceived as unsafe, because mm-hmm. it was. But now they've doing a lot better. They've got guards on the trains. They've got new turnstiles that don't allow people to jump. They've got new cars, but they're still living the leftover bad rep of those couple of years. So we got to get mass transit more uh, popular. But all cities revive at the street level, not the top of the Bank of America building. Yep. The street level is, as you were alluding to, it's got to be the restaurants. It's got to be the art galleries. It's got to be the the fun part of why you're downtown Mm -hmm. um, and why you want to live downtown. And so I think that's a very big political uh, battle because you have to get 
looser regulations on, you know, pop-up stands or pop-up retail. It, it shouldn't require six months to get a permit to do these kinds of things. And I think I share Cyrus's thought that the mayor certainly understands a lot of the, the needs. She's been hamstrung for a while. She's had one or two votes on the city uh, board of soups. Uh-huh. Uh, now, through the political process, we've got her up to three or four. Uh-huh. Uh, we got her a new district attorney by, by uh, doing the recall. And so I think going forward, there should be some other things we're looking at trying to make the city's structure easier to run. She's uh-huh. not a CEO. She's, uh, she's got to ask a lot of permission to do a lot of things. Some stuff she can do more aggressively, but she really does have, a, I think, a good handle on it. But we need to get her a, a board of soups that also recognizes business is what drives the economy. Uh-huh. The economy drives the income for the city, which they're going to realize more and more as property taxes go down and, and sales taxes go down and all those things. So it's a painful process. It's, yeah. You know, we've, we've been forecasting this with them for several years, but, you know, nobody deals with it unless it's at your, at your front okay. door. Let's keep pushing the pin back in <laughs> terms of talking about politics because we can't avoid it. But yeah. I'm curious, at, like at the street level, and this morning I had breakfast with my colleague Sarah Dunn, who's sitting in the room here, and we had breakfast at La Regency Cafe, which is on first building on California Street. And I used to work above that building, and I've been there hmm. for 20 years. I went there every other day. And the guy who owns it said, yeah, I'm working for free. This is a hobby now. I don't make any money. And we were in there. Maybe two people came through that restaurant between 8 and 9 o'clock in the morning. And it used to be a hubbub, of course. That's what life is like downtown. Mm-hmm. So A, is downtown now safer, safe and secure? And is there any vibrancy in the street-level retail? Because as you say correctly, Mike, it's that that makes things feel good. You see it there, not where you look up to the beautiful buildings. Yep. That's the that's the level-setting thing that has to happen before then you can say, okay, cool, we got a city that works. But crime becomes a top-rated story here. So walking to work a year ago, much less even six months ago, vastly different than it is today. Certainly on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Mm. I have caught myself walking across California Street, looking up up the hill and being stunned at the amount of people in all the crosswalks. Nine o'clock. Apparently no one comes to work at seven or eight anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, so a little bit later in the day, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the streets are not that far off from what they were. Traffic is horrendous because everybody's driving to the bridges and the freeways. Uh-huh. So many parts of it feel like, quote unquote, the good old days. It's got a long way to go, certainly. But, you know, we the mayor did a good job of cleaning up Union Square from from the break and grab programs. I think Christmas will be a good season for Union Square. So, again, it's all trends. And I think the trends are better. Uh, not done by a long stretch, but certainly feels better than it did a year or six months ago or three months ago. Uh-huh. I, I think to touch on the notion, you know, the same dynamic at play with the reputation that Bart has and sort of the hangover right. of the perception of, of, you know, crime and so on. Downtown is suffering from the same. And until you get people to come downtown, uh-huh. Michael and I had lunch a week ago, two weeks ago at a restaurant, packed. And this is a 150-seat restaurant. I mean, mm-hmm. it's massive. STK, which is at 101 Market, which is around the corner from our building that we bought at 60 Spear, we were looking at their numbers. They're doing $22 million annually. 
It's, mm -hmm. it's other than, I believe, their Vegas location. It's the second highest grossing SDK in the world. Okay. It's in downtown San Francisco. You talk to the folks at Proper Foods. You talk to uh, a lot of the sort of operators that have adapted to sort of today's environment. They'll say that, that things are, are good, certainly much better today than it was a year ago or, or a year before that. So uh -huh. we're definitely trending in the right direction. I think the issue is this notion of sort of how do you solve for a hybrid, you know, work style. And we're, we're personally in the office four days a week. And we were, I, I sort of find it to be really important that people are here Monday and Friday because everyone else is gone Monday to Friday. And so sort of this desire to want to support local businesses and what have you on those two days is sort of a big thing for me. So the whole team is here. We used to give people the choice to be away, uh, to work from home on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. Mm -hmm. And so by definition, about a third of the team was gone on any one of those days. And we missed out on that, on, on the whole point of being in the office. When you don't have the critical mass here, you're not having those chance encounters and you're not having those conversations that would otherwise take five minutes right. over a spreadsheet or looking at a floor plan as you try to you know, schedule a Zoom and wait for someone to fix their mic and so on. And so what was interesting is we then shifted that and we said, work from home is optional. It's one day a week and it's Wednesday. You've gotta be here Monday, Tuesday. You've gotta be here Thursday, Friday. Mm. And I, I still come in on Wednesdays. I'm in five days a week. Right. I have two young children. I do not work from home and I haven't <laughs> since the beginning of the pandemic. But I found that more and more people, there was probably six or seven people here yesterday when it's their work from home day. And so I, I, what I'm seeing from a trend perspective is that people just want to be around one another and, right. and that's not going away. Mm -hmm. And I think I would just touch on the fact that we're not you know, we'd have to drink our own Kool-Aid. We're in real estate. And if we're not using our offices, well, our tenants sure as hell aren't either. But when you look at these tech companies and you look at part of what led to this exodus in San Francisco so quickly, right, which is part of what our issue was, right. was that tech likes to move fast and break things, right? That's their, that's their mantra. Well, this work from home experiment was a very quick decision. And it very quickly flood, you know, vacated San Francisco. Yeah. But we're seeing it completely reverse to the point where Altman says one of the dumbest experiments we ever did was work from home. And he's doubling down and he just put his money where his mouth is and signed a 500,000 square foot lease, which is impressive, right? But, but right. we're seeing a lot more people follow on. And now the investors are saying, I'm not putting money in a company unless you're here in person. Uh -huh. So we're discussing something that could be discussed in any city because the place that we land with work from home three, four, five days a week, we don't know the number is a universal issue, at least in America. I don't think it's so big in, in Asia where I think their or, apartments or are too Europe. small to work from home. Yeah. But so, so that's a universal question. However, it, let's spend just a couple minutes on it. When it settles to the place that it settles, it won't support the same level of restaurants that we did back when the norm was four and a half days a week. And we are going to settle. And Mike, you and I argued about this at a conference a, a yeah, year yeah, and yeah. a half ago. Yeah. And I argue with my wife about it all the time. She said, it's going to be five days. And I bullshit. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> Can it's you gonna, say that? Yes. It's going to come <laughs> back to it's going to come back to variable. And it depends. And flexibility that will have a lot of people coming to the office will be much different than now. But the urban cores have to reinvent themselves for what that reality will be. Yeah. I think, I think 
we get stuck talking about just San Francisco, and I don't want to get back yep. into politics, but if you look at the We're cities that are, next. are struggling, it's the left coast. It starts at Seattle and goes to Portland and then San Francisco, then Oakland, then Los Angeles. Then, you know, th these are all cities that are left-leaning versus Dallas, Charlotte, uh, Miami, wherever, where, you know, the red states aren't dealing with this stuff because they dealt with COVID differently, rightly or wrongly. Uh, they mm -hmm. deal with crime differently, rightly or wrongly. <clears throat> Uh, they deal with homelessness differently. They don't have it. Uh, and, and it's just a political decision you can you make or don't make is how you're going to deal with it. I, I do think it's it's politically driven as to how people respond yep. to this stuff. And so, you know, we got we got we got to get our arms around fixing is the same statement again, clean, safe streets. If, if you could do that with a magic wand, the rest would cure itself. Hmm. I think the one thing that I would add about San Francisco and then addressing sort of the more national trends uh -huh. is that San Francisco is much more heavily influenced by tech, which was our Achilles heel. Right. But it's also what's going to lead to us having a disproportionately quick recovery, from my perspective, mm -hmm. as it relates to utilization, to uh -huh. office utilization, because the, the shift is already happening at, you know, the reality is people are sheep. <laughs> so we follow, right? And, right? and and when, you know, the Sam Altmans of the world and, you know, other influential tech CEOs are coming out and saying you've got to be back in the office and the VCs are doing the same, everyone's going to start following suit. It's just a matter of when. Uh -huh. I think it's incumbent upon us as we think about the built environment and downtown specifically to encourage that. By heavily emphasizing, like we have in Union Square, a lot of foot patrols and safety mm -hmm. and, and ambassadors and so on, to make sure that when they do come back to the office, as they are currently, and you're seeing on an average basis, we're seeing our castle logins sort of you know continue to steadily right. increase. We're 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 right at or above the the, the national average. But San Francisco to, is at or above the national. We're right there. I mean, but, with but yeah, in that sort of 52, 53% range, I believe. But we need to be doing a lot better than that. We need to get that to sort of yeah, 65, yeah. 70, 75%. And, but you do that by creating points of interest and events and programming uh -huh. and destination. And that is, is both the business community, but also the, the electeds. They need to be inspiring and encouraging people to uh -huh. want to do those things. And not putting up roadblocks, um, and we're you know, again we we're seeing some of that happen with you know, uh, night markets and and other things. Uh -huh. But uh, again, we need to have programming downtown. We have to do it. change of attitude. It, it, I love focus groups of one. So our focus group of one is my colleague Sarah, who this morning walked into your office here and said, "Wow." If ZRG's office felt like this in downtown San Francisco, I'd come to work every day. So that's one of the drivers that really matter, old office space or commodity. And you're in a commodity building with a great view, but that, and you're in a building that might have gone, the keys have been handed in. So there's so many contradictions in this one <laughs> sentence. I don't know where to start. It's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> okay, so let's move nationally for a minute with some com comparables and then let's come to San Francisco and talk about politics, which we've been begging to, begging to do for a while. I had Colin Connolly on the podcast about three months ago. He's the CEO of Cousins Properties mm -hmm. and all of his office are in the smile states. 
and they're class A plus in the smile states, and they're doing pretty well. And he talked a lot about the differentials, even though each of the cities in the Sun Belt are blue cities, they're in red states. Mm -hmm. So their approach to COVID was more open enough that let the success happen that hasn't happened in our progressive city. So any kind of general comments about that? And that will take us right into this discussion of how do you change the dynamics here? You know, rule one, real estate's a local business, right? Never been truer than it is today. Mm. So a Southern city and the smile that has a certain political bent to it, <clears throat> a certain way it dealt with COVID is gonna have a different end result than another city in California or New York or wherever. So you have to start with that. It's always locally driven. Um, I do think there's a bent towards blue state, red state, that is more friendly to business. Mm -hmm. Just start with that. You know, which, which cities call on companies to come to their city, whether it's Dallas or Miami. The mayor of Miami is a force. You know, he will, he will speak in front of any group and say, you know, I'm so glad that Amazon got kicked out of New York City because I went and called on them and said, come to Miami. I'm so glad this happened here. I, I'm calling on everybody who's getting rejected by another city uh, as bad for their economy. I know what it does to the economy, so I want them. So th there's, that's just a different attitude that, that you don't see in, in a lot of places that are suffering. How do you take a progressive city and make it business friendly? And one overlay to the question it's something I say on every other episode of Leading Voices is that two of the dirtiest words in the English language are developer and landlord. Mm -hmm. And we need to reclaim those words to be at least revenue neutral, right? I mean, we're, we're not- high, on, on par with politicians because they're so high. <laughs> exactly. Ugh, and they have a far greater sense of self <laughs> than we so, have. <laughs> but how do you do that? Because it's not, it's enlightened self-interest. We're good corporate players. Mike, you're a great corporate player with CASA and the things you've done. But taught, unpack the city and what the issues are. Our mayor is not a CEO, city council. To talk through all this and I don't even know where well, to start. Uh, let me give you one quick answer and then I'll let Cyrus give his version. I'm, I'm harassed continually by one of the gadflies of San Francisco. He's a former city administrator, Bill Lee. And, you know, he, he loves the city. And he tells me every time we talk, you got to come out with an ad that talks about how much you've given philanthropically, philanthropically, how much you've given to the homeless commission, how much you've given to the, and you got to tell people that's what your contribution is. And I go, ah, that's so self-serving and it's really hard to do. And, but I think if you looked at the real estate community, there would be inherent in those companies mm -hmm. that kind of contribution, that kind of part of the fabric of the community. But but it's it's challenging, if nothing else, to sort of brag about it. You know, you can't say, hey, wait a minute. You know, we we gave a million dollars to this thing or we gave a five dollars to that thing. So we don't have a good reputation. We just don't. And right. so when Bar Bernie Sanders gets up there and my favorite impersonation, the billionaires, you know, it's a bad word. You know, right. being successful is a bad word. And if, if real estate has its share of billionaires, you know, from New York to wherever, you just get a bad rap and it's just hard to undo it. You know, it, it, let me challenge you on that. It's sure. an interesting thing is I actually don't care from a reputational standpoint how much you've donated to something. I do care that you've been a civic leader because I know you. 
But for me, there's more credibility in the civic leadership and the hours spent because you care about the fabric of our community than you got so much money you're able to give a million bucks. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a, but it's a different story, but the population doesn't still, still know hard that to tell. Still it's hard to tell. It's really yeah. hard to tell. Yeah. It, it, well, but it's also misconstrued as being self-serving. Mm -hmm. Meaning that you're selfish. It's because you're seeking these profits that you're, you know, light self-interested, bribing politicians, and I, I mean everything is going to be misconstrued in this malicious yeah. way, right? So I think I think it it's funny because it it's unfortunately it's not just Bernie Sanders. It's it's mm -hmm. pervasive amongst the hard left. Yep. So the Democratic Socialists of America don't believe in the sort of the concept of property ownership and so on. I mean, they're really espousing true commun. I mean, this is not can, a joke. Can I, can I quote our member of the Board of Soups? Yeah, go for it. Capitalism is why we have the homelessness and crime, quote unquote. D Dean Preston honestly believes that capitalism is the sole source and that- He said it. Yeah, <laughs> quoted, by the wow. way. <laughs> quoted saying that. And as opposed to recognizing that we have a pervasive mental health issue we have a pervasive drug issue mm -hmm. because we are so we have such an enablement mentality when it comes to prosecuting. Uh, we really are just coddling not just the users but the the dealers. That it, when you look at how other places, you know, this is like the hole in the dam, right? Where we're, we are, where all these drug tourists come because we not only are okay with them using Love here the tourists. It's the, we, we, we have a drug tourism issue in San Francisco, which is a large part of our homeless issue. And you then compound that with the mental health issues and, and a number of other things. But members of the hard left, like the Dean Prestons of the world, fundamentally view this as a, as a sort of homogenous issue right. that is purely a capitalist or, or cost or, or, or you know, income uh, driven problem. Uh, and I think that when you look at landlords, quote unquote, yep. and, and they couple developers and landlords in one, yep. that as a class of uh, people within this economic structure, mm -hmm. that, that you are the evil class that yep. is forcing out people onto the street or that you are causing gentrification yep. because you fundamentally don't believe in the notion of supply and demand and how that actually leads to you know, more supply will lead to lower costs and so on. So there's an economics 101 issue that, uh -huh. that's, that's at play. And when you don't agree on the impact of increased supply on reducing housing costs, uh -huh. then you just don't really have a starting place to have a debate. And that's where fundamentally, I think the breakdown in the perception of yeah. the role of developers uh, play in, in making a society more affordable. So let's be specific about the chances of reclaiming moderation among in, among the leaders, the, the political leaders in San Francisco, and then what it takes to get the government to work so that this can happen. We can all keep talking about what civic leadership really means. And I just remember growing up, there were civic leaders who were business leaders. They weren't the bad guys. I, I, right? So I, I think that we can return to that. I think there's three things. I think one is that uh, the deficit uh, that the city, you know, regardless of whether they want to continue to stick their head in the sand, the deficit is real. And that's going to be, that's a forcing function. There will, as a result of the cuts that are inevitable, there will be a reckoning that as it turns out, you cannot ostracize and vilify the majority source of your revenue, which mm -hmm. then subsidize 
these incredible social Doesn't programs. The deficit do a little bit worse because now you need more money because you don't have enough money and you don't have enough money to fight crime, which is the bottom line of what we just talked about. Well, so I, I, my view on that is that you know we've bloated this budget. We've 2x the budget to close to $15 billion in the last 10 years. So we were at about seven and change, and we're now at 14 and change, with the population remaining consistent around 800,000. And is that differential of $7 billion progressivism run amok, or yes. is it real stuff that matters? My view is that it is progressivism run amok. It's inefficiency when it comes to how we contract and, and spend taxpayer money. Uh -huh. uh, and it's pet projects that, that a lot of leaders have, have been, able to, been able to advocate for in times of abundance. Uh, but in doing so, uh, have, have, have sort of pursued those things at the cost of some of the basic necessities, which is a fully functioning school system, which is a fully functioning police department, which is a fully functioning sort of just government administration or bureaucracy as it relates to enabling and, and, and continuing to grow business and so on. So yes, I mean, I think that from my point of view, yes. And, and the deficit is just gonna force a reckoning to say, are these policies working? Prop, since Prop C passed, Mm -hmm. Have we had a worsening in the street conditions or an improvement despite the added tax? Mm -hmm. And I think the answers resoundingly when you go down the list are going to be no, these have failed. And, the, and ultimately, the good thing about being in a democracy is that the voters who have otherwise been disengaged are now getting pissed off. They're getting educated and they're going to end up voting. And we're already seeing a politics of moderation in play. So it sort of doesn't matter what the electeds think. They're going to be out if they don't get with the program. It's an interesting question. So I think of the federal budget, and I think of the, now not the progressivisms all the way on the left. I'm thinking of the people all the way on the right who want to kill the IRS. And oh, yeah, there's a lot of fat in the federal budget. Apart from defense, I don't know there's a lot of fat in the federal budget. But there's a lot of fat in the local budget. Mm. And I want to distinguish fat from not fat. But it sounds like it's real fat and could be put under control. Yeah, it's hard to fathom it could be double with the same population and not be fat. It just couldn't possibly be anything else. I, I think that I think that one of the thoughts I had about what to try to do about this mess is, and I go back to, you mentioned earlier, CASA. What, what we did back then, just for people's background, is yeah. we took the MTC, put it together, there was three co-chairs, and we got two committees, a technical committee and a steering committee. The technical committee was people who actually knew how to build housing. and what This was, was a housing shortage. Correct. How committee. to go to Sacramento and change yep. some laws. And then there was a steering committee, which was political, and they, were, they had to bless it. But the punchline is when we had our first meetings with the steering committee and the, and the technical committee, we, we said, you, everybody's got to put their hand up in the air. We had unions, we had small cities, we had big cities, we had for-profit developers, we had non-profit developers. We had every food group that touches some part of housing and said, if you're not prepared to give up something to get a better product, you should leave now. Mm -hmm. Because what you get in these negotiations is the unions aren't gonna give up anything and the small cities don't want any housing. Everybody comes in with their silo that they don't want to change what they have. And we said, that's not gonna work, you gotta leave. So we made everybody do a vow that they would be prepared to give up something. So that as we went through the process, you know, and everybody started getting back in their silo, we said, whoa, 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 you gotta give to get. And it worked. At the end of the day, we came up with a 10 element compact 
that went to Sacramento and most of it actually got done. And that's what's missing in, in a lot of what we do in our business and political mm -hmm. business. There really is no intent to compromise. There really is no intent to give up something. Everybody walks in with you know, their hands up against their chest and I'm not giving up anything because I don't have to. You know, CEQA, unions, you name it. It goes through <laughs> the list of what gets in the way. But I think what Cyrus said is, is right. At the end of the day, it's math. So if the math collapses because the buildings are empty and the property taxes go down and the sales revenue go down and the hotel taxes go down and Westfield closes, that impact will be hit at city coffers. And also, same thing Cyrus said, you know, if you take polling today, the populations are not happy. They don't like what they see. And that's how votes change the, the uh, people in charge. Uh -huh. So I think we're in the middle of it, back to trend lines. Right. I think 24 is gonna be a big year uh, for making change. Uh -huh. And hopefully that we'd, it'd be nice if you didn't have to, that they sort of woke up and said, yeah, we get it, but they're probably not gonna, because it's kind of a silo. Yeah. Well, and, and we've sort of encouraged uh, a system that, that sort of really continue to perpetuate the extremes, right? So whether it's at a national level, the Bernies and the Trumps, right, or at the local level, we don't have a Trump equivalent here, but you sort of, it's a, it's how, how much more to the left can I push this? And uh -huh. so the, the narrative has been hijacked and very systematically over the last decade here locally by hijacked extremists. by the left. Uh, not the, look, we are all left, right? I think mm -hmm. what you're debating over here are shades of blue. Yeah, yeah. And it's just how hard left. So it's the Democratic yeah. Socialists of America. That's who's hijacked our DCCC, which is sort of who then runs these slates and makes recommendations and voter guides. Right. It's then, you know, them getting appointed to various commissions. It's uh, getting on to uh, certain community groups, uh, Democratic social, you know, excuse me, Democratic clubs in different neighborhoods. I mean, this is a this is a comprehensive sort of assault on moderation, on common sense. And they and they did it effectively because despite the immense amount of wealth and education that exists here in San Francisco amongst the 800,000 who live mm -hmm. here, uh, and, and mind you, our population generally pre-COVID would double on a daily basis because mm -hmm. of commuters, that despite that, our voter turnout from the beginning of recorded time, right, right when we've had free and fair mm -hmm. elections, has been substantially below even the national average in the United States, which which means one thing. It means voter apathy, yep. a lack of civic engagement, a lack of education when it comes down to the to the policies. And when you're not vested in the system, because yep. it is otherwise a transient city because of the affordability issues, because people come here when they're young and as soon as they generally have kids, they move to the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And so generally you're not homeowners that it's a lot easier for these politicians to keep passing taxes so, on taxes on taxes. And, so I, and I, got, I got to interject. Think about how many times we've changed the nature of politics just in San Francisco to the Board of Soups. We have 11 districts <laughs> among 800,000 yeah. people. So mm -hmm. you and your six cousins and their friends can become a member of the Board of Soups if you all show up. It doesn't take very many people. And so each of them becomes fragmented. It becomes fiefdoms. Uh -huh. And no one has the city at large. There, we, we don't have any members of the Board of Soups that are at large. The mayor is the only person who's at large. 
And none of, nobody else has to get elected by the city. They just have to get elected by their best friends who have their same viewpoints. Sounds and, like Congress. Yeah, it sounds and, like the House of Representatives, as you just it, described. Yeah, I was going to say, versus the Senate. For versus something the, crazy. Versus yeah. the Senate. So I think we're going to try to move that ball as well. And eventually, if we can change some of the political structure, it will make things easier. But there are groups that uh, Cyrus and I know very well, Neighbors, Grow SF, Advance SF, all doing moderate approach to decisions. It's not left or right. It's just moderate. What makes sense? What, what makes sense is a question that we sometimes don't get the answer yeah. to. Does this make sense? Or is it just, you know, supporting a theory? Well, and, and part of the problem is that those who are encouraged to participate and, and become electeds here oftentimes haven't had any real world experience themselves. Yeah. And so to answer the question of what makes sense, you actually need to have done something in the real world, uh, but otherwise uh -huh. you're living in theory. And that's that's sort of where right. some of this, you know, hypothetical versus reality, you know, conflict comes in. A couple of comments. Uh, one more question on the subject, and then I want to change subjects, and then we have to finish up so we don't have a lot of time left. Um, what makes sense is really interesting to me because it's context, and every single bill in and of itself, to me, always goes, okay, I support that. But then when you just supported 10 of them, it doesn't make sense anymore. So it's really hard outside of context to do anything. So that short-term thinking is really rough thing. But one thing is a compliment to you, Mike, which is CASA, which I watched you lead mm. and heard you speak about a bunch of times of getting this particularly diverse group together to no one be fully happy, mm -hmm. to make compromise and agree to things that makes sense for the whole, not for your individual company, is the model that needs to be replicated in how we run our politics. So kudos to you as a civic leader, once again, saying that for having led that process in such a, a, a holistic fashion. Mm. Well, it wasn't easy. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I still remember my first meeting with uh, Steve Heminger said we were having this meeting and it was a public hearing. And I said, it's a what? <laughs> he said, it was a public hearing. He said, I don't do public hearings anymore. I'd get in trouble. But anyway, everything yeah. had to be public hearing. Right. And it was a challenge. And I was really pleased that we got it done. And it's hard to replicate. You know, it was driven by MTC. It was driven by the obvious need for housing. I don't know how you would do it in other environments. You know, how do you run a state or a city that way? But it's part of what's missing. It's a methodology that is replicable. The yeah. specifics are not at all. Yeah. Okay, so last question on the politics subject is over the next year and into the next election, Does what's the chance of this turning to a moderate place? And I appreciate your comment of it's all blue, but moderation and common sense make sense. But how does this work? And is the business community fully aligned with this? And is the general population who has tended not to vote, are they ready and fed up with it because we got to do it? I think I've seen more engagement. I've been here 15 years. I've seen more engagement uh, amongst neighbors, friends, school teachers. I mean, just everyone across every segment of, of, of the city uh -huh. uh, than I have from when I first moved here. Uh, and that's encouraging. Does everyone agree that we need to moderate and pursue common sense? Yes. Who is best suited to represent those interests, whether it's for the mayoral race or for specific board seats. Uh, I think we have some work to do to get 
everybody aligned, especially because we've recently introduced ranked choice voting, which is another problem, uh -huh. uh, which can fragment the sort of moderate majority and allow some fringe mm -hmm. candidates to sort of unnaturally, you know, succeed in, in specific races. So will we moderate? I, I absolutely believe so. We're working each of us, you know, on a daily basis to, to advance that goal. Are we going to get there just in 2024? Look, it took us over a decade to get to the extremes that we are. So I think this is a multi, multi-election cycle effort mm -hmm. to get us back. But again, when we talk about trend lines, this, you know, we are trending in the right direction. And I'm betting that as we fix our politics, which are one of the variables we talked about dragging yep. San Francisco down, we're going to see the macro environment also improve. Uh, and I think as a result of that, then you're going to see tech continue to boom. And so that that's sort of the long term five to 10 year bet we're making on San Francisco personally. Cool. OK, before we I'm going to raise the altitude here and talk regionally for a minute. But Mike, any other comments on that before we go there? No, I, I think that's a fair assessment. We're we're in a trend line, whether it's a political conversation or a real estate conversation. I, I have decided I now categorize myself in either Dr. Rainbow or Dr. Rain Cloud, depending on the exact conversation mm -hmm. that's going on. Because we have a little bit of both. AI, as we talked about, is the rainbow. Yeah. Uh, politics, as it's currently set, kind of the rain cloud, but but progress. So I think, I think there's, again, it, it's never all dark or all light. And I think we're in a good trend, having hit the bottom, maybe. Yeah. So I want to think more neighbor. We're talking all about downtown San Francisco and then the politics of San Francisco. I just want to think kind of briefly through neighborhoods in San Francisco. Do they feel better than downtown or yes. what's yeah. the <laughs> unequivocally yes. next question? Uh, the, the neighborhoods never struggled. Yeah. Right. In As fact, much, yeah. well, in fact, yeah. Following shutdown, once once sort of the restaurants started opening up and so on. And the open carry, open carry alcohol, not uh, not the red state context, uh, but but the open alcohol, open container rules yeah. uh, loosened up with the ABC. All the parklets started flourishing. I mean, the restaurants in the neighborhoods have been jammed. You can't get a reservation at most restaurants in these neighborhoods. For, you know, from 2020 on, um, restaurants are having unprecedented sales levels. I mean, it it it's great. We're seeing it ourselves. Just we opened up a 200-unit apartment building in the Outer Mission in May. Uh -huh. We're you know 53, 54 percent leased already, uh -huh. and we're seeing a big influx of of renters uh, from out of state and out of town uh -huh. uh, coming here for jobs because their their employers have said that they have mandated return. Uh -huh. uh, but we're also just seeing people move here because they want to be in San Francisco, um, but they're choosing explicitly to rent there. Right. in the outer mission sure and not downtown or in soma because of the hangover of the reputation issues and the perception of safety and cleanliness when i first moved to san francisco i pinched my i still pinch myself when i come over the golden gate bridge it's like mm -hmm. how do we get to live here mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we can't forget that it, you mentioned this total side conversation but you mentioned open carry and i'm just trying to imagine living in a city where people might wear guns and holsters again. <laughs> but one of my colleagues actually the other day said, I am so nervous going into a shopping center that yeah, in my handbag, I, I got a little gun. And we can't let that be the default mode for people to want to do. Right. That's just nuts. Okay. And, and yeah, look, 
specifically to San Francisco because Prop 47 is a California issue. Uh-huh. And when you're talking about sort of, you know, being very light on crime, I think it starts by sending the wrong message that the BART board was trying to advocate for fair, you know, to, to decriminalize fair evasion as an example. We, we've sort of gone about social justice reform in a very, in my opinion, an unproductive way for society. Yeah. So put that stuff aside. But we need to get out of our own way locally. We need to be able to actually thwart crime as it's happening. We need right. to be able to chase vehicles. We need to be able to actually apprehend suspects without burying our already reduced you know, force in paperwork. And, and that stuff is the stuff we talked about. The police commission has been completely inundated with you know, activists, right? Progressive hard left activists. So even if the mayor wanted to replace the chief, she can't do it because she's going to need the board of supervisors to confirm and she doesn't have any control over her own police commission because right. an appointee ended up defecting and flipping or you know whatever you want to characterize it so the the issues might be at a national level or at a state level but but we have things that we need to do here yeah. locally to address them you can't live in a hobbesian society life is mm. not short it short brood it, if it's that way then everything's upended. We make the assumption that those things are, are, are given and they've not become. Well, and that's, and, and I, I wrote about this a year and a half ago or so. I got robbed and, and another friend of ours was held up at gunpoint for his watch. I mean, we have a broken social contract at this point. You and don't mess with Hamid. It's <laughs> like really dumb. But by the way, you, you know, that, that, that inspired a lot of folks to get engaged, right? Yeah. It's part of the, it's part of our, you know, the stages of grief and recovery. I mean, it's, you know, Okay, so talk about the, the general area. I want to think a little bit about Oakland, Silicon Valley versus downtown San Francisco and maybe how that's held up from a real estate investment standpoint and or development and the drivers. So the story of the Bay Area, not the story of downtown. Mike, you're nodding the strongest, so you get to go first. <laughs> Lovely. Um, yeah, no, I think the Bay Area has one general economy, you know, whether it's Silicon Valley, San Francisco, or even Oakland. The, the business world is, is on pause. There's very little demand. South Bay, even the city, Oakland, there's not an economic awakening yet. We are blessed with the AI miracle, right? Ironically, that's the industry that's gonna put a lot of jobs <laughs> to bed. So as it grows, I'm not sure what that means for tech and lawyers and, public relations firms who do write-ups. There's a lot of stuff that's at risk, but regardless, we do have it and it's growing, but the engine hasn't turned on. Everything in real estate, I've always said my whole career is a hockey stick and the decline was a hockey stick. As soon as the first couple couple of companies decided to give up space and let everybody go, everybody did it, Thus, thus our vacancy. Every time real estate flips the switch back on, it starts with a couple of companies saying, hey, you know, rents are really low. I think we're, you know, the national economy is doing well. We need to grow. The Bay Area is still the right place to be. Let's go lease a half a million feet. And then the next CFO goes, holy crap, the rates are going to go up. Let's go lease a half a million feet. And you get that hockey stick recovery. So that's historical. It's always been that way, uh, up and down, mm-hmm. booms and crashes. The sheep. Because <laughs> because everybody likes to follow everybody else. Yeah. So I think that's the Bay Area's condition. Uh, as I said, when we talk to the brokers in the South Bay or the East Bay or the city, it's just it's just not a lot of life. Which is why the vacancy is or the occupancy is still a negative growth. We still have more. And you're talking office here, not office talking for apartments. sure. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a mis 
understanding of how the real estate products connect. I remember back in Dallas and then uh, Toronto, people going, oh, you poor people, you're in office. We're in resident, we're in multifamily. And I would look at them and go, you know, you're next. And they were like, oh, well, they are because multifamilies dropped in value across the country 25% while mm -hmm. offices dropped, whatever you want to call it, 50, 60 plus. Look at the shopping centers, uh, look at the hotels in San Francisco and other places. So they're all connected. Mm -hmm. So multifamilies down. The great quote in uh, John McNellis's article this week was talking to a multifamily developer who sell, said, I'm building $500 million worth of uh, apartments. Unfortunately, they cost me $700 million. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, part of it's the overhang of supply. So there's just a lot of deliveries at the same time in that sector. which Yeah, is and the cap rates and the interest rates and all the above. And office demand, which leads to residential demand. Yeah. It, it all, it, it's not a standalone domino. And, and Google killed its deals, its three big districts, including the big district in San Jose, Correct. which was driven by office. They still want to build the apartments, but the kids right. won't have the demand. Yep. So the ripple effects of that one's another, I want to have some happy notes at the end of the conversation here, because that one was, <laughs> was tough. That was tough. Um, to a city I, that I, wants to become its next self. Though, though I'm not sure. So I, what I would add is that I think the South Bay are more mature companies uh -huh. uh, in the peninsula too, unlike San Francisco in today's environment and, yeah. and are therefore much more impacted by the perception of, of sort of analysts and others because they're publicly traded, right? right. And so the markets are what are, are gonna determine or drive or motivate a lot of these decisions. And so Google has, has explicitly said, we are not canceling and getting rid of these projects. They've just postponed them for an indefinite period of time, which is really probably four or five years. But they need to say that so that they don't get clobbered at their next earnings call, right? Good and, point. And, and so, they're managing Wall Street's expectations, right? The market's expectations, whereas startups that are privately funded are making decisions on a completely different basis. Uh -huh. And those are much more driven by sort of venture capital and the availability of liquidity. And what I would say is that in terms of green shoots, since we want to go positive, is that in Q1 alone of this year, we had $25 billion of venture capital investment in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, but mm -hmm. in San Francisco is where they, where they track it. That's a meaningful amount of capital. How's that $25 billion compare to our market, San Bay Area's market share of venture capital in the past and other places? So is it, it fleeing it, San Francisco or is it? It's not at all. Uh, in fact, we are in aggregate, we've received more dollars invested in venture capital than the next nine cities nationally combined. Yeah to a factor of four or five. I mean, it, it is, we are it's still- historic and continued and that trend has absolutely. not shifted. Uh, but when we look at the peninsula and the projects that we have down there, whether it's life science or office, the larger users are on pause because they cannot go to their boards and they cannot tell Wall Street that they're signing big leases. Walmart, you know, right, signing 700,000 right. feet in a sublease, I think is an anomaly, but uh, otherwise activity is dead for that reason. I think the reason you're seeing five and a half million feet of tenants in the market right now up here in San Francisco is because they don't have Wall Street to respond to answer to. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that that's what's at play between here and the South Bay today, at least in our projects and what we're mm -hmm. seeing. Yeah, we're doing a joint venture with a big publicly traded REIT and they have to tell their, you know, board members and their stockholders that we're 
put this project on pause. So we have one downtown San Jose, it's on pause, million square feet of office, and it's just on pause because what else would you announce? Mm -hmm. So, but there's gonna be a while before the, you know, the demand hockey stick has to kick in mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, CFOs have to go, uh-oh. Well, and, and in terms of San Francisco, and that's where Prop M is actually our sort of double-edged sword as well, is that it, the uh-oh moment happens here a lot faster because well, it's a finite supply that you can't suddenly add to very quickly. Um, and so even though 30 million feet feels like a lot of vacancy, you know, this whole notion of sort of office conversions and that you're going to have these forever vacant buildings, I think is a little silly in the context of the fact that, you know, assuming we don't absolutely kill the golden goose and just drive all business away, right. that this stuff is going to fill up. And when it does, to, to Michael's point, it'll be quick once once it starts one of the themes today is don't kill the golden goose because mm. we did mm. we damaged it we did sure. yeah, right. <laughs> we, we put it in the icu <laughs> before we wrap up what are we missing in this conversation either green shoots or more depressing news what haven't we talked about that matters to the storyline and then i'll ask my wrap-up question hmm. each get one and if there's none it's okay i think that in the sort of focus on doom loop and and this sort of fetish with misery porn uh, is what I call it in the media. Mm -hmm. It really has overlooked one key component, which is that San Francisco as the global innovation sort of mm -hmm. capital combined with sort of all the other fundamentals that we have here, which is the natural beauty that you touched on, the education centers and so on, is still the same place that it used to be four years ago and 10 years before that and the 20 before that and that we are a boom and bust city and that as hard as our politicians are going to try to destroy it there are some innate qualities uh that then when you combine with the people here uh, you know fundamentally give me long-term hope uh that you know i've made the right decision that this is where i've chosen to sort of raise a family and and mm -hmm. have made this home where I've lived longer than anywhere else I have in my life. And that stuff won't change, but that it's worth fighting for, that there's a lot of people fighting for it, uh, and that we will right the ship. It, innate qualities, it, I, we talk, I keep mentioning natural beauty, but we haven't in the conversation mentioned Berkeley and Stanford, which in the innate quality- And UCSF are, and- Right, yeah. it, it, that's right. And the medical, it's yeah. just humongous. Yeah. So as drivers. Yeah, but, and I, I think you you pointed it out earlier. If you think about the districts in San Francisco, nine, ten of them are thriving. People live there. They go to school. They go shopping. They eat. Downtown is our problem child. So that's the one everybody's focused on. So that's good. And I've never I've been here forever. I've never seen the amount of civic engagement that lit up this time. The, the friends we've talked about that are, yeah. got robbed or are running organizations called Neighbors. Uh, that's different. Uh, Chris Larson, who's getting, given money to the city to put up cameras and stuff. That stuff never happened before. We, the, 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 the west side, the north side, always just sort of stayed to themselves. And this time, everybody gets it. Everybody's engaged, and that's different. So we are much more impactful at getting moderate views on the table than I think we ever have been. You know, it's interesting, I think, to your earlier question of, of how do we reframe the narrative or the, you know, the perception of real estate and, and, uh -huh. and landlords and business for how integral tech has been to the success of San Francisco in recent times. If you were to think of New York City and think of Wall Street as being completely apathetic and disengaged from the day to days 
of government. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what we had here leading up to the pandemic. But to, to Michael's very point, I think we're seeing so many across every business sort of sector mm -hmm. of the leaders get engaged at this point that even though the Bay Area Council and others have done good advocacy on behalf of business in the past, I think now we're seeing such a holistic sort of comprehensive approach that technology will have a seat at the table, that venture will have a seat at the table mm -hmm. and electeds are gonna be listening to them. And I think that that matters a lot when you are the heart of the economic engine of the city. And so again, I'm, 2024 is just the start. This is going to take a number of elections, but, yeah, sure. but we'll get there. Last question on leading voices is always uh, our guests advice for a young person entering the real estate business. Mike? Whenever I talk to somebody who's coming out of school, I find that they are really focused on real estate as a career path. They don't know, quite know where to go or how to mm -hmm. do it. And I always tell them it doesn't really matter how you start. Um, the, the wheels of a, de of a development company in our case are you know, acquisitions and finance and construction and design and leasing and all of those things. And so I always tell young folks if they really think they have a future in real estate is go do anything. Be a broker go into construction, go to a bank, doesn't matter. Get an appetite that's got some characteristics that are useful to a development company, if that's what you wanna be, or an investment company, or a Blackstone, or whatever. But go get some experience. You can get out there, join ULI, join NAIOP. Occasionally, I will tell someone I really like, I said, look, go get a job, be miserable, and then come back, mm -hmm. uh, you know, after you've learned something. Because we, in particular, don't train very well, but we, we take people who've done something, and then we give them cross-fertilization. So that's my advice to most young people is it doesn't matter what you do at first. Just go do something. It's, it's really interesting. First of all, it doesn't matter what you first do. I see this people all the time because you're going to do three, four, five things till you settle in. Yes. I wrote an article once because this happened to me is I didn't find myself till I was 40. Mm. And if you assume that it won't gel till you're 40, Cyrus, you will disagree with this because you're, <laughs> you're, you've accomplished the opposite story. It lets you relax about those early choices because it could be a random group of things that then gel at a point in time. Well, let's be clear. The younger people today don't care about the, the stigma of changing jobs every no, two not years. At all. <laughs> we, we did growing up. You know, my father retired 80 years at a factory or something. But uh, yeah, we, we this generation is way more flexible for yeah, have experiences. Yeah. Cyrus? So we, we run a program called the Presidio Scholars, which tries to help underprivileged youth find career pathways into real estate uh -huh. uh, to help sort of diversify the industry. And the one thing that I sort of emphasize is, you know, to, to, to touch on what Michael said, it's ultimately, it, it doesn't matter what you do, just find what you're passionate about. Because ultimately, you may think you want to be something, and most times it's a developer. Mm. But what it takes to actually become a quote-unquote developer can take many different paths. Yeah. Uh, and there isn't a logical prescribed path to get there. But you will be much more successful if you can lean into your strengths that, that then make you happy. Uh -huh. And that the traditional quote-unquote path is not necessarily one that that's going to lead to success, uh, and, and I find that, you know, we've we've candidly uh, not had success where we've found candidates that are just constantly trying to find uh, the next sort of mm. you know promotion per se, but rather those candidates and, and employees who are just hardworking 
and they can be hardworking because they enjoy the work that they do. And it's so much easier for us to then promote that right. and, and, and encourage that and nurture that uh, than, than trying to sort of fit the, the square peg in a round hole. But so. Also, I think it ties together with the work from home fallacy. If, if you're going to be in a creative business, whether it's development or something in tech, that doesn't work at home on a Zoom. You, to be creative, you have to have feedback, you have to have give and take, you have to do all the stuff that yeah. people do in Cyrus's office, they do in mine, they get together in a conference room at the drop of a hat and they talk about something. That whole connection, and so when, if somebody comes in and says, you know, I really like to work from home three days a week, I say, good luck. Yeah. Yeah, it's ultimately is still an apprenticeship sort of based society, right? right. That, that you aren't going to advance. I don't have a, I don't have a book to hand you. Right. Uh, you know, here, here's the employee handbook uh -huh. and you're going to suddenly learn what to do in your role as an associate. That just doesn't work. You're going to learn it from right. everyone else around you and while you're doing it. So it's, it's one thing, your word passion, it's interesting. So I remember my daughter raising my daughter and we always said, go find your passion, go find your passion. And I'll argue with you a little bit. I think that might be a false challenge for me finding real estate. It wasn't my passion. And then it grew to become so. And then the, so, so one, in some ways it doesn't matter the industry you're in, pick the industry, stick with it. For me, it was find your role, find the place that you're happy, but the passion is the thing that you do every day and the role that fits who you are as a human being, apart from your expectation, oh, I gotta be a deal guy. Well, maybe I need to be an asset manager. Mm -hmm. I, I, so I totally agree with that, which is that, I, but I think that comes with self-awareness, which is to say, I know that I'm very good at this, which is why I said, you need to lean into what your yep. skills are. I know that I'm, you know, while I, while I'm a good writer, it's not what I'm very passionate about. So if my job was to, as a lawyer, was to sit there and write briefs all day, I would be miserable, even though I was good at it. Now you have AI. And now you have AI. <laughs> and so it's a good thing. That, you, know, you get unemployed anyway. And it's interesting because then the inverse true is also true, which is that, you know, a friend said the purposeless pursuit of passion always leads to pain. It's not just about passion, but right. it's about finding kind of what you're, what you're skillful at and yeah. what you enjoy Boom. and leaning into that. And that'll take you to where you want to go. And join ULI or NIICP because mm -hmm. it, re it really does matter to be networked and engaged. And it's actually Absolutely. hard to be engaged from your desk at home. Absolutely. So great place to end. Thank you both. This has been a great conversation. We're going to demystify what the fuck is going on in San Francisco. So thank you, guys. <laughs> thank you so All much. Right. Thanks. It was fun. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leadingvoices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.